Welcome to All I Know Is This, a podcast of First Presbyterian Church in Richmond, Virginia. My name is Amy Star Redwine. I'm one of the pastors at the church and your host. And today we are bringing you the final episode of season two, where we are tracking our sermon and education series at the church in the fall of 2020 called Can We Talk? Biblical Conversations in Good Faith. And today for this episode, I am joined by my friend and colleague, Jamie Lynn Haskins. And I am so delighted that Jamie Lynn has joined us today. Jamie Lynn is the chaplain for spiritual life at the University of Richmond, which is just down the road from First Presbyterian Church. And we have had her to speak at the church before, and she has such wisdom to share from the work that she does uh, now and has done with young people in such a formative stage of their life. And I'm really looking forward to sharing Jamie Lynn with all of you and, and getting to have this conversation today. Thank you for being here. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's so good to be with you and to get to check back in with the good people. I think it was um, not long before COVID that you were last yeah. at First Presbyterian, even though that seems like a lifetime ago. It was a totally different world, but y'all can cook or and cater a beautiful meal. Uh, <laughs> I still remember the meal that we shared. Well, yeah, me too. And we all look forward to getting to share <laughs> meals together at the church and elsewhere again. Jamie Lynn, can you just start by telling us a little bit about your background, what you're doing now? I would love to hear how things are going on a college campus in the midst of this season. Yeah, absolutely. So I have been in college chaplaincy and campus ministry for about 10 years. Prior to that, I was in congregational ministry for a few years at a Christian Church Disciples of Christ in Seattle. I'm ordained in a small Protestant denomination called the Christian Church Disciples of Christ. And I find myself now at the University of Richmond as the chaplain for spiritual life, which is essentially the chaplain to students who are spiritual, but not religious. Uh And a lot of people are a little bit perplexed why there's an ordained Christian minister serving as chaplain for folks who are spiritual, but not religious. But the background of that is I identify as a queer woman. And so have really had experiences inside the church that are beautiful and wonderful and loving and have also unfortunately had experiences in the church that were pretty damaging mm-hmm. and pretty dangerous in terms of who I am as a beloved child of God and folks not being able to recognize and receive that. Mm-hmm. So because of those experiences, I have a deep, deep love in my call and in my heart for students who've been hurt by the church and who haven't been affirmed as who they are. And a lot of the students that we see at the University of Richmond who identify as spiritual but not religious actually have a background of some type of religious hurt or some type of religious violence and come seeking some type of healing. And so that's why I find myself navigating that space. And it's work I'm really committed to. What important work that is. And I think you talked a little bit about that work when you were with us last winter and just struck me how important that is and how grateful I am that you are there doing that work, that there are people doing that work. And I think especially as we have navigated these last couple of months at the church talking about 
how it is we have conversations about some of life's difficult topics that I thought of you. And so I would love to just hear what you've learned over the years in your work with students and maybe even in your own experiences about how to have some of these really challenging conversations? So for me, and I don't have the answers, all I know is, is what, what I do daily. Yeah. Um, and for me, it's about showing up fully yourself as authentic and transparent as possible mm. and undefended as possible. So a mentor told me when I just started ministry that the best kind of love to offer a people or a congregation is undefended love, hmm. love that is just completely open and vulnerable to, to whatever the other person you're in conversation with might have to offer. And so for me, that means not taking personally what's said, but honoring its validity and its truth and trying to really honor where that person is. And sometimes that can be really hard. So if I'm sharing a conversation with someone in the church, for example, not a student, but someone, for example, in my denomination, who, when I was fighting to be ordained, told me that I couldn't be because I was GLBTQIA plus. So mm -hmm. part of the gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender, queer, intersex, asexual plus community. I had to really learn how to honor where someone was coming from without maybe internalizing or honoring something is true that they were saying. And so that's something I continue to balance with. How can I truly honor where anyone is coming from at any time and value that as their full and authentic self while deciding for myself what feels faithful and true to me. Mm -hmm. And so that's something I try to do. And it's something I work really hard with my students to do, to say, how can we see each other and really hear each other in an undefended way? and choose what we take in is true. And I think that's the work of my ministry is kind of journeying with people as we have those conversations and do that work. I know you said you don't have the answer, but I feel like you just articulated something so clearly that we have been sort of working with and around in this series. And I love the language of um, showing up undefended. And I think that in so many ways is so contrary to what often happens in any kind of hard conversation. Even, you know, the name for this series, we called it Can Can We Talk? And there's a banner in front of the church that says that in big letters. And we drove past it the other day. And I mean, my 15-year-old daughter just literally shuddered. And she was like, <laughs> The three worst words you ever have to hear. I love that, Fanny. I drive by on, on the way to work every day and I love it. Oh, that's nice to hear. But I do think that phrase, like, you know, hey, can we talk? You know, you can try to make it casual, but usually that means like there's a big conversation coming. And so like our defenses so naturally can go up when we know we're going to have a difficult conversation about something. And I think we've seen it like writ large in our political life as a country this presidential election season that people are really struggling to come to a conversation undefended and really be open to receive what someone else has. Yeah. And I think the key there is that delicate balance between showing up undefended, but being really rooted in who you are. Hmm. So one thing to be undefended and to hear what the other person has to say, it's a delicate balance when something that they're going to offer might do violence or harm to you. And so that's when it becomes important to be really rooted in who you are and to yeah. choose what you're going to take in. And that's something I really have to work with my students on and that I struggle with is I want to hear and honor everything, but I get to choose what I take in and I get to choose what I sit down. And that work, I feel like is my life's work of being yeah. able to 
that. Yeah, that is really hard. What I hear in that is the paradox of being totally open, but also really grounded. And I would imagine that that's really challenging for your students, because I think young people, by definition, they're in the identity formation process. So it's hard to be rooted when you're still figuring out who you are. So I don't know, I'm wondering how you help them navigate that or how that sort of changes the conversation when you're talking to somebody who is in the throes of forming their identity. So I think as a chaplain, and if I am may be so bold as the church, I think our job when someone is an identity formation is to affirm, affirm, mm-hmm. affirm, affirm, mm-hmm. to validate who they are, to affirm them as a child of God, as fearfully and wonderfully made, as perfect and as in all of their imperfections, as beautiful. I just, I think that is what we need. We need to be affirmed. We need to be strong before we can be stable. Mm. And I, I think where the church has erred in the past has been to critique, to see critique as the way we shape a Christian identity, to see correction as the way we shape a Christian identity. If we mm. just tell them not to do something, that's going to work, right? But what I think we're finding and what research is finding is it's through affirmation that we shape strong, centered people who are rooted and, and firm in who they are. And so my strategy is almost across the board to make sure people know that they're loved and they're good enough, just as they are, and that they are Christian enough, just as they are, they are faithful enough, just as they are. And if we can get there, then we can have any conversation. Um, And I can help them begin to be undefended, but no one to protect themselves. But it really is that initial work I think we're called to do as a church, and I'm called to do as a chaplain to affirm, 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 and support. I often tell my students, I'm a chaplain and my job is to love you. I am literally paid to love you. And I think that's true. I think I think it's what we're all called to do. I mean, that's so great to hear. And I couldn't agree more that I think the church in the past has often made some some mistakes of really focusing on critique and what what we're doing wrong and even seeing young people as there to be corrected and directed and sort of filled or, or like a blank slate that we have to fill up with these certain orthodox ideas, right? And I've been so grateful in my ministry, and and I've had positions in churches where I've worked primarily with children and families and youth, that there has been, I think, a different focus in the last few decades to say, you know, children are innately spiritual. They bring that with them when they are born. And part of what we need to do is affirm that in them and help them notice that in themselves. You know, Janet Legros, who's currently working with our children and families, has a wonderful saying, which is that we don't want to teach our children anything that down the line, they're going to have to unlearn and say, oh, that was what I was taught, but it was so it was so wrong. And I think we do that not with bad intentions. Sometimes we're worried about what children can handle, and we're trying to take these huge concepts and make them palatable. So it's a tough, there's not, nothing easy about that. But I think it's, it's helped me to think about it in that way. Yeah, absolutely. They already show up as these masterpieces, right? They show up <laughs> as the best question askers and the best seekers. And, and I, I think 18 to 22 year olds might be some of our best theologians because oh. everything is up for, for discussion, right? They're not yeah. certain of anything and they're so open and the world is their oyster and whatever they can dream is possible. And they're asking these incredible questions. And I think historically we've been fearful of those questions. Mm-hmm. We've worried about what they'll ask of our tradition, if they'll somehow shake us or make us 
less true. Mm-hmm. But if you can embrace the questions, I I think there's so much to learn. I feel like a college student preaches a mini sermon to me every day and they don't even <laughs> know it. And I just feel grateful for that. Yeah, that is so great. And it's also an interesting time where I would imagine you're often getting students who are sort of in this in-between space, like maybe they've come out of a church tradition, and maybe they will go back to a church at some point. But in those four years, I mean, most people I know didn't go to church while they were in college. And I know a lot of ministers, so (laughs) if anybody was going to. But I think what an interesting opportunity to kind of be with and get to influence and be influenced by young people at that stage. Yeah, and they're doing church. It's just in dorm rooms with potato chips instead of communion, right? If we can see the ways that they're gathering and they're worshiping together and they're asking questions about the divine, I think it just can be challenging sometimes for us as the institutional church, because like that doesn't go toward a tithe and they're not a part of our worship count on Sunday morning. Those things would be great, but we can also celebrate how they are gathering, which is at like 3am with gummy bears and talking about big questions, right? Which is equally faithful. It just looks different. Our motto during this COVID season has been, we are the church wherever we are. And I really believe that one of the gifts of this time has been to shake up the institutional church, you know, not any one church, but all of us, I think, out of this dependence on the routines and rituals that are so attached to particular places and particular times and say, oh, we can worship in our living room rooms in our living rooms in our pajamas you know with I know families who make pancakes and make a you know Sunday morning out of it and and it's such a different feel and it's there's been a real opportunity there Um, so I love what you just described that yes absolutely it is this in-between space but it is no less church it is no less this gathered community asking really meaningful questions. I want to bring up our scripture passage or bring our scriptures into this conversation today. And we're talking about a passage that has become kind of near and dear to my heart in the past few years. Um, Even though it was a passage I didn't have a lot of familiarity with, Uh, it's from the book of Acts chapter 16. And we are entering this story when Paul and Silas Um, who has been traveling with him, have been thrown into prison. And the way they got there is a little bit complicated, but it's an interesting story. But for the purposes of, of our conversation, we'll focus on what happens when they're in prison. There is an earthquake that kind of breaks down the prison walls and opens up all the doors. So they have a natural escape. And before the earthquake, Paul and Silas, this it's in the middle of the night, they were praying and singing hymns. So, I mean, to your point just now, they were having this worship experience in a pretty unusual place. But when the earthquake came, the doors were open. It says everyone's chains were unfastened. So not just Paul and Silas, but all the prisoners had the opportunity to escape. And then we read that when the jailer woke up and saw the prison doors wide open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, presumably because he had not done his job to keep 
the prisoners where they were supposed to be. But Paul says, do not harm yourself for we are all here. And then the jailer falls down before Paul and Silas takes them outside and asks them a question that gets asked from time to time in the book of Acts, what must I do to be saved? And they say, believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And then he takes them to his home and he and all those in his home are baptized and become a part of this new community. One of the reasons that this passage was brought to my attention a few years ago was when I was introduced to somebody who does work around helping churches be with people who are experiencing despair, even to the point of suicide. And this is the passage that he uses to talk about that kind of suicidal despair and what it means to say to someone, do not harm yourself, we are here, we are with you. And I think Acts is really in so many ways a book about identity formation. And in many ways, it's about the formation of the church, the identity of the church, but also There are so many people that are encountered in the book of Acts who go through these incredible transformations in understanding kind of what you were talking about before, that God affirms them, God loves them, even though they have been told in all sorts of ways that they are outside of God's love. And um, I think this is one of those stories. So um, I would love to hear your thoughts. I have not ever thought of this text in terms of suicidal ideations or making a choice to take one's life. And so when you sent your initial email, I was really moved by it. I think the core of the Christian call should say, we are here, right? Mm-hmm. Should say over and over, we are here, we are here, we are here. And I've been sitting with this since I read your email, because I wonder what it would look like. It would look like if we assumed a posture of simply saying over and over, we are here, we are mm-hmm. here, we are here. I think particularly thinking about suicide and anxiety and depression, which is huge, which has a huge rise in the age of COVID, both Mm -hmm. for young adults and for our population in general, right? I think we are fearful as the church. We're either fearful because it's not something we know anything about, or Mm -hmm. we know just enough to be afraid that we're going to get it wrong. And so instead we're silent. Maybe we don't know what to say to that student who always seems to be hurting in the back pew or always seems a little upset. Maybe Mm -hmm. we don't know what to say to the mom who just took their child to some type of live-in facility. We don't know how to welcome that family or how to support them. Um, And so folks sometimes come to me and say, how do I support a young adult experiencing mental illness? Or how do I support a family whose who's young adult is experiencing mental illness? And I think as I read the scripture, I thought, oh, it really is that simple. All you have to do is say, we are here, we are here, we are here, and not be afraid to get it wrong. Now, there are certainly things that's helpful to not do, like shame someone or to condemn their thoughts or just to say somehow that those aren't helpful thoughts. Those It's not helpful to judge or to critique, as we talked about earlier. As long as you stand on the ground of affirmation and of offering support, it's hard to go wrong. And I think we we as the church, and particularly we as the white middle-class church, are really afraid to be wrong. We're afraid to be wrong. But as I heard this text, I just thought, oh, goodness, that's all we have to do. Well, I so love that. We are here. We are here. We are here. And I agree with you. I think there is so much power in being able to say that and You know, I'll say what I learned from this person who, after his own experience of suicidal depression, and he was a pastor, 
Um, he left the ministry and started this organization that trains not only pastors, but also lay people in how to show up for someone who is really struggling, particularly with mental illness, which people often suffer silently. And the statistics that he shares are just staggering. I mean, I, I want to say it's like 80% of any worshiping community 80% of the people there, they may not have struggled with this themselves, but if not themselves, a loved one, a close loved one. I mean, these are things that almost all of us have been touched by in one way or another. And I think the best thing we can do is actually say that out loud and normalize it in that way. And of course, none of us want this to be something that's normal. But if we pretend like it's not, that only makes it harder for us to talk about when we really need to, um, whether it's to say to somebody, I'm here, I, I hear you. Are you struggling? You don't seem yourself, you know, are you okay? Um, and it's okay if you're not okay. I'm still going to be here. Um, or whether we um, are, are struggling to ask for help ourselves. Yeah. I mean, the numbers as you've lifted up are quite staggering. So suicide is death by suicide is the second highest cause of death for emerging adults or students mm. who are kind of college age. Um, death by suicide for the entire population is the fourth leading cause of death. So I think wow. sometimes we think of suicide as something far off or something removed. But if you think about those numbers, Someone you know, so surely someone in your church, but someone you know who is very close to you has either experienced suicidal ideations or has loved someone who's died by suicide, or mm -hmm. someone who has attempted suicide. And I think we do a disservice when we can't talk about it or when we're afraid to talk about it because that's where shame comes in, right? That's where Christianity, we've historically shamed through silence. So we don't always have to say it wrong. We just don't have to talk about it. And if we don't talk about it, then you know you've, you're somehow sinful. Sinful, you're somehow wrong, right? right? Shame through silence has been a powerful Christian tool historically. Hmm. Yes. So yeah, I think you're right. I think you've got to talk about it. And again, it comes back to what we talked about at the beginning of the podcast. You have to show up authentically. So mm -hmm. can you imagine if 80% of your congregation or a congregation has been touched by suicide in some way, what if we actually talked about it? That means eight out of mm -hmm. 10 people would say, oh, me too. Like that has right. impacted me. And what would that coffee hour conversation be right. instead of a coffee hour conversation where you talk about the weather, which is great, but there's such possibility for meaning making if we're not afraid to talk about it. Yeah. And I do think that churches can be such a powerful community where these kinds of hard things can be said out loud. And yet, unfortunately, you know, the power of silence and the fear that we all feel that if other people aren't talking about it, it must be because it's not an issue for them. And then the isolation that we feel. And I think that's the other thing that is so powerful. And that strikes me about this story, actually, because in this story, the jailer really is isolated. He's the only one in his role. You know, the prisoners have this prisoner community in common. And even though it does seem like, you know, the other prisoners kind of take off when they get the chance, and Paul and Silas are the ones that stick around. And that's what I think about in this story as well, is kind of the power of staying and being present 
And as you said, we are here. And what that suggests about this emerging community that Paul is helping to form and shape, and that staying and seeing this jailer who was there to make sure they stayed behind bars, that he has the opportunity to be transformed by the love that God has for him. It is just a really powerful story. <laughs> it is. And you know, I never thought about it this way. I was just so moved by it when you offered that perspective and so grateful for that perspective, because it is it's such a powerful story and such a model of what authentic Christianity and authentic living can look like. Well, and I, and I think about too, this goes back to what you were talking about before when you're sort of reflecting on what your students, what you hear from them, what they're dealing with. But I just think about the enormous pressures and stress that I see in all people today. But, you know, I think particularly our young people. And when I think about my childhood or the time when I was sort of going through getting to be in youth group and going through confirmation, and yes, you know, there were stresses and there were a lot of demands, but it feels like it's gotten exponentially more and more challenging. The church is really having to ask, how can we be here? How can we say that we are here to our young people, especially when we can't always wait for them to show up to us? So I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, but um, just thinking about that in this in this context as well. It's funny, I've just been looking at statistics um, around mental health because I'm preaching on anxiety tomorrow for our college students. Oh, wow. And in 1984, UCLA asked its entire incoming class, right? So 18-year-olds, do you feel overwhelmed? And about 20% mm-hmm. of them said yes. In the early 2000s, about 40% of them said yes. Mm-hmm. And somewhere, I can't remember the exact number, but recently between 60 and 80% of incoming freshmen at UCLA said they feel wow. they feel overwhelmed. So just from the 80s to now, we have seen this astronomical increase. And I think it has to do with lots of things. I think it has to do with social media, with all kinds of factors that just simply weren't at play in 1984 mm-hmm. that are at play now. And so I think sometimes the church tries to be we, I want to include myself, try to be hip and trendy and cool, right? Mm-hmm. So you're going to get college kids if you wear a beanie and a flannel and have skinny <laughs> jeans and a man with a guitar with a goatee. And if you have a coffee bar and right. if you have some couches, then mm-hmm. maybe you'll get young people to come in. But I actually find more than anything, what they're craving is affirmation and welcome into something other than what they know. And mm. so it's not actually about whether you have TikTok or posting on social media all the time, but it's just about whether you're welcoming them into a space that is safe, that's maybe slowed down a little bit, that maybe looks different from the constant swirling of their life. And that maybe it is an 85 year old woman who makes excellent cookies. Uh And so they show up to church because Mildred or Betty is going to offer them these amazing cookies is going to ask them how their English class is and sit with them. So I think I think one challenge for us in meeting students where they are is to stop trying to be something other than who we are. I think when we show up as the church and our authenticity, that really resonates with them. Mm -hmm. I think that really is our task. And it can be so scary because it doesn't seem like it's working. Christianity looks different now, but I don't think different is bad. I think in some ways the Christian tradition is more authentic and is more full and is more open to the spirit now because We've had to be, right? Our tradition is changing and we're not who we used to be. And I think that's exciting. I do too. As hard as that 
is. And I don't want to downplay the pain and the grief that can come with the kind of change that we're navigating right now. But I absolutely agree with you. And part of what I hear in that is this real invitation. I mean, it's exhausting. And I've done it as especially, you know, working with youth to try to read their minds and figure out what they're going to think is cool. And what a gift to just believe to even affirm ourselves that we are enough that we can just show up and be authentic and be affirming and loving and that there's a simplicity in that. And again, I think about what Paul says in this passage, and it is just it in many ways is so very simple. Don't harm yourself. We are all here. And sometimes the simple and the straightforward is enough. It's actually, I mean, it's more than enough, right? It's exactly what we're called to do. Yeah. Yeah. We are just called to show up and be ourselves. And it's just that easy. And it's just that hard because it is hard. (laughs) It is hard to be vulnerable. But I really think it's as simple as that. Whether you're providing care to someone who's considering suicide or whether you're just seeking to support a young adult, you literally just have to show up as who you are and be open to who they are. Gosh, this has been such an amazing conversation, Jamie Lynn. And I'm so grateful for what you've shared with us today. Um, You've given me a lot to think about. And yes, I think especially to be undefended and yet rooted in who we are as we enter into these hard conversations, that is a gift that that I'm going to take away today. So thank you so much for that and for everything you've shared and for the incredible work that you do in our community. Likewise, thank you all so much for having me. And I hope I get to see the good people of First Presbyterian in person soon. Yeah, we will definitely have you again um, as soon as we can. And uh, I want to thank all of our listeners for being here with us today and throughout this season and hope that you will all keep having good faith conversations and sharing your experiences with us. For now, thanks for listening.